0: What's up, everyone? It's your boy, Danny Lopriori, and welcome to Off the Cuff. You might know me as the guy from the Basement Yard, Vine, the Priori podcast, and while I love to make people laugh, just know that I've struggled with my mental health for most of my life, just like many of you. Here on Off The Cuff, I will be talking with some of the most impactful influencers, athletes, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and mental health experts to have real, unapologetic conversations about mental health and breaking the stigma that surrounds it. This show is for you, and I'm so happy to have you here. Now, let's talk Off The Cuff.
1: Welcome back to Off the Cuff. I am joined by triple board certified, and I need to even learn what that means because it sounds very, very cool, but I have no idea what it means. Clinical and forensic neuropsychologist. That I know what that means. An author of her book, Six Steps to Unlock Your True Motivation, Harness Your Willpower and Get Out of Your Own Way, which I need to do all the time. You've seen her everywhere. I'm joined by Dr. Judy Ho. Dr. Judy, how are you?
2: I'm doing great, Danny. Thank you so much for having me today.
1: Yeah, I mean, that intro could have just went on and on and on. You're very accomplished. I get very impressed by the people that we have on the show.
2: Thank you so much. And mental health is my passion. I know that mental wellness is one of your passions as well. And yes, I mean, I can talk about it all day. And perhaps all of these accolades that I've really accumulated, it's just really showing how long I've been so dedicated to this particular field. It wasn't necessarily something that I thought, oh, I'm just going to get another board certification. But the more that I was working in the field, the more I felt like I had to do more education and really keeping myself as current as possible so I can serve my population the best.
1: For sure. Like, listen, I'm a comedian. So, you know, like prerequisites are just like, be funny. There's not, not a lot of school that goes into it. How many years of school does it take to be triple board certified?
2: Well, let's see. So I had four years of undergraduate five years of doctoral program training. Then I had a three-year postdoctoral fellowship. And then each of my board certifications took two to three years to obtain. And I have three <laughs> of them. So I'm trying to do the math really fast. Let's see. That Four, is nine, insane. 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, about 20 years altogether.
1: <laughs> wow. Now, do you think kind of, you know, in terms like, you know, in your book, getting out of your own way, right? So do you think a lot of this maybe started from your dedication to school? Yeah,
2: you know, I think that first of all, school was just a value in my family, school and education. It was really, really important to my family, my parents, they really saw it as a route to try to make sure that you had a future. Obviously, that's not always the case for every single person. But I feel like that was a value that I was taught when I was younger. So I think that that's where education became more important, but also in order to work in the field of psychology, you have to have a certain level of education. So after I graduated college, I did work in mental health for a little while, but realizing that I could only go so far to serve people if I didn't go on to get a doctorate, that was really what made me feel even more strongly about, okay, I got to go back to school and make sure that I get everything done so that I can serve my patients in a way that I feel would be the most helpful.
1: See, that's the thing though, too. It's even when I started my journey in terms of like I want to help people, I always start like, listen, I'm not a licensed professional. I can only speak on what I've been through and listen to other people's stories. So that's like, thank you for putting in all the work because you guys are what makes this show like what it is.
2: But what's so cool about what you're doing, Danny, is that you have so many great people on your show. You know, you really walk the walk and talk, talk yourself. And you come with such a great interest in the area that I think just the willingness to kind of learn more that is amazing. And I also wanted to say that humor and mental health are so connected. It's so important to laugh and to have humor to be able to heal.
1: I think I always preach that, that we have to try and find levity in some of these situations because obviously the mental health stigma is still out of control. It's gotten a little bit better now and people are speaking up more and more. But even with that, you have people that kind of, you know, can see mental health as trendy or see mental health as something that will help their brand. You know, I didn't spend time in a mental health hospital to help my brand. You know what I mean? I I spent I, I spent time in a mental hospital because I didn't know where else to go. I didn't know what else to do with my life. I did not see like, you know, any positive outcome in my life. But To reiterate on what you were talking about, it's you have to be able to find levity in a lot of serious situations, not to take anything away from them, not to make them less than, but humor is such a big part of our society that if we kind of strip it away from everything, it's going to be hard to get over some stuff.
2: Absolutely. And I think humor can be such a healing agent in someone's mental health journey. And we all need that. It's a huge coping skill, first and foremost. It's just so helpful when you're having a stressful day, when you're going through something serious that you have to still learn to laugh. You still have to have that ability to be able to engage. And I really respect what you do because I could never. I could never put myself out there in front of other people and like, how are you going to like these ma- this material? Are you going to engage with me? Do you think I'm funny? Like, it's a lot. It's a lot to put yourself out there, and you are serving the population in a really important way because especially during the pandemic, I mean, I made it like a goal of mine to watch something funny every single day because that was helpful for my own mental
1: health. Me too. Me too. It started with Tiger King and then I realized that uh, <laughs> Tiger King was a little bit too much and then I was like, you know, I'll we'll watch some stand up. But Yeah. No, because yep. the thing is though, even to go off what you just said, it's I just did like my first stand up shows ever and like they sold out and it was on Broadway wow, in New York amazing. and it was a lot of fun. It was it was amazing. And there's this thing that happens where when you get the first laugh, it becomes like a new drug that you think you, like, that you've never taken before in your life. I'm sure you know the scientific reasons, but I can only speak from it from a, uh, a non-educated background. So like doing stuff like that, it's it is a lot of I want these people to like me. But then I realized I've kind of been like that my entire life. There's a lot of like socioeconomic things that go into it as well, because like, especially like when you do like observational stuff and, Mm -hmm. you know, you want people to think that's funny without offending people. But then it's also like a lot of it is emotional stuff. You know, like I'm going to come bare my soul to you people for an hour. And it's a lot. But one of the questions I always wanted to ask is a lot of people joke about being a sociopath, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. That's a big thing. Yes. I've joked many, many times that I have so sociopathic tendencies. But <laughs> even with those things, I think that just comes with the territory with trying to be a comedian. But uh, it's my cross to bear. But can you actually tell me what the difference between like a sociopath and like an actual psychopath are?
2: Yes. Yeah, so, you know, sociopath and psychopath are almost used interchangeably, I feel like, in vocabulary. Sometimes people will say sociopath or psychopath, and they kind of mean the same thing. And in psychology, we have a diagnosis, an actual diagnosis to describe people who other people might call sociopaths and psychopaths, and it's called the antisocial personality disorder. So really, the idea is that this is a person who has very low or very little empathy, they look at other human beings as pawns to use in their game. And they will literally step on anybody that they need to, to succeed. They can be quite selfish in nature. There's also these tendencies possibly to do things that are maybe morally questionable, but then really without blinking an eye, I'm talking about like the extreme here, obviously. And then of course there's dimensions. And so when people kind of joke around and say, oh, maybe I'm a little sociopathic or psychopathic, I think they mean, I see myself a little bit on this dimension. And really everybody's on a dimension somewhere. It's just like, what part of the dimension are you on? And interestingly, there's been a lot of studies that show that when you look at leaders, entrepreneurs, people who are really ambitious, that the percentage of people who might have psychopathic traits goes up significantly. So in the general (laughs) population, see, so you're like, that's right. So in the general population, it's about one to three out of 100 people. But then when they go and look at these entrepreneurs and business owners and CEOs and whatnot, it's anywhere from six to 10 out of 100. So there's obviously some interesting redeeming traits of people who might be on the psychopathic spectrum. I mean, because they have a way about them, they kind of understand people at the core sometimes. They kind of know how to present themselves in a way that might make people want to work with them or associate themselves with this person. And also they have leadership qualities. A lot of times there's that charisma that comes with somebody who's on this spectrum. And so that we're talking about people who like, aren't going to go and murder you in your sleep. Okay. But like, obviously there's, there's that extreme where like, none of these redeeming qualities even matter anymore. Right. We're, then we're talking about people like Macy and like, you know, Bundy and like, you know, all those serial murders, like that's not what we're completely about. out
1: there, completely
2: yeah. out there. But when we're talking about people who are like, Oh man, I had that boss who in the beginning, I thought they were just like the best boss ever. And then over time, it's like, whoa, this person's kind of psychopathic, but they also aren't going to murder you. Like that's the kind of person that I'm talking about that are living in society every day and they might be our best friends or even our spouses or even ourselves.
1: (laughs) Yeah. well, well, Sounds like it. (laughs) It sounds like it. But the thing is like also too, it's people don't really ever think of like sociopaths and psychopaths as a spectrum. It's like you're either Mm -hmm. a sociopath or a psychopath, Yeah. but uh, I've never really thought of it like as a spectrum before that's actually very interesting
2: yeah it really is a spectrum and i think that part of it is that we watch all these true crime shows right and it's like we see the extreme we see the people who are like calling them a psychopath isn't even like the worst thing about what's going on you know like
1: yeah right yeah no exactly
2: right right but but when we're talking about people who we are in relationship with oftentimes and we know they're not really going to kill us but there's always something like just slightly amiss like hey, do you not even care at all about anybody else's suffering? They're like, oh, why? Somebody's suffering? I mean, sometimes you have people who have various levels of that trait where there's just very little empathy sometimes. That would be somebody who may have some psychopathic traits. But like, once that is pointed out to them, they're like, okay, I'll try to do better next time. Like, They might actually be into self-improvement. True psychopaths or true people who might have these antisocial personality disorders in a very severe way they don't care about self-improvement. And they'll tell you that they want to self-improve, but that's really just part of their manipulation. They don't really see that they need anything changed in their life and certainly not within their personality.
1: Well, just to, to piggyback off that, so you actually wor- do work in the judicial system.
2: Yes, I'm an expert witness and mostly civil, but some criminal cases too.
1: Tell me how you got into that, especially you know into whether it be civil or, or criminal. What goes into being an expert witness? Obviously, your school background, but what made you want to go out there and actually put yourself out there and make yourself accessible to the judicial system?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting because I see the legal system as something that, one, is a necessary evil, but two, in America, I know that we have a lot of areas that we can improve upon. But honestly, when you look at the world, the legal system in America is actually one of the better ones for sure. And it gives you a a way to proceed in in terms of different types of disputes that could come up. And some of them involve mental health concerns. And when I was younger, I don't think I necessarily realized that, you know, I was just thinking, okay, like the legal system is for people who get in trouble with the law. But then you realize, wow, well, sometimes people get in trouble with the law related to mental health and mental illness, undiagnosed schizophrenia, You know, for example. There's also a lot of times in civil cases where something has happened and a person feels like they were mentally harmed by it, but they need someone to come in and say, were they harmed and exactly how they were harmed and what does the future of their life look like? So once I realized that there was this mental health intersection, I became very interested in serving the judicial system. And also weirdly, I know when I tell people this, they think I'm joking, but I'm not. I really like working with lawyers. I actually really like attorneys. I have a lot of friends who (laughs) are attorneys and I don't know what happened. Like it is not my life's, you know, goal to make friends who are attorneys per se, but like the people who I ended up being close to and who are my friends, and then they grew up over time and then they chose a career, like a lot of them are attorneys. So I think I also just learned a lot about their work through talking with them and just became interested in collaborating essentially with attorneys and learning more about the legal system while also contributing my expertise.
1: See, that's a, first of all, that's groundbreaking news. I think you might be the first person (laughs) I've ever heard that's ever said that.
2: They like attorneys.
1: Yeah. 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 I like attorneys (laughs) who win. You know what I mean? And if an attorney loses, you know, it's, it's, I don't like them that much, but for you though, not that you're putting yourself in danger per se, but it's like, it's almost to a point where it's like expert witness usually brings the heat. Yes. You know? So it's like, you kind of like make or break cases
2: hmm. Yes.
1: And if you, could, if you could do that on the stand, I'm sure that you could do 10 minutes in a comedy club, just, just so you know.
2: <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, you know what, you know, one day I will do that because it is one of my like things that I've always just I just wanted to like, get the kind of, you know, cojones to go and like, do a stand up. And just, just do it. Like, just see what happens. If I get heckled, it's okay. Like, it's just one of my life's goals to, to make myself get over that fear and hopefully bring a little laughter to somebody in some way. I mean, if either they're laughing at me, if they're laughing, then we talked about the benefits to their life and mental health in general. So why not? Right.
1: I think people should always have goals that are outside of their, what they think their humanly threshold is. Mm Mm-hmm. Like things that they're capable of. So, you know, there's things that in my life that, so me, I used to never like art. I was like, I'm just not interested in art. I'm not interested mm-hmm. in museums. I'm not interested in researching, you know, painters. I'm not interested in going to museums. I'm not, but like a few years ago, I kind of made it my goal to kind of be involved in terms of going discover new things. Mm-hmm. And that experience from, going to museums and reading about artists and and starting to read more and doing all these things. It opened my mind up to things that I didn't know that were possible in terms of being successful at music, being successful at comedy, being successful at just everyday tasks. I was somebody that kind of had to start at the bottom in terms of with my career. I didn't really have a lot of connections, but now, you know, you make your way up and you meet a lot of people and you try to do the best that you can. I just try to get people that either listen to me or follow me to do the best that they can. And in your case, just do just do it now at this point.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Because it's just like I I don't want
1: I don't want to be 80 years old and be like, I shouldn't have sold those shows out.
2: I appreciate the encouragement because I still remember several years ago. Well, now it's like more 10 10 years ago now. My gosh, I feel like time just went by so fast. But 10 years ago, I realized that I was starting to develop a little bit of a fear of heights. Like just like, kind of slowly crept up on me. I was just like, hmm, I, I don't like heights very much. This is going to become a bigger fear if I don't confront it. And at the same time, ever since I was a child, I just love the circus so much. Like, I love circus performers. I always admired, you know, people who were the aerial artists and flying trapeze artists. I'm like, these guys are so cool. So I ended up going to take uh, flying trapeze lessons. And <laughs> when I first went up there, I was so scared because I was so high up. And I looked down and I was like, oh, that's it. I'm climbing back down. Like, I'm going back down the ladder, whatever. I'm not going to do this. And I was so happy that the instructors there were like, there's only one way down and it's with the trapeze. Like, we're not letting you climb down. Like, they literally blocked my way down, this, like, down the ladder. They were like, I'm you know going they're to doing. go this way. Yep. And you know what? After that I became addicted. I took flying trapeze lessons actually very regularly until the pandemic.
1: See, it unlocks something in your brain. It really does.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So you know, I'm going to do the same thing with comedy. Like one of these days I'm just going to be like, yeah, I'm going to show up at an open mic night and just go up and I have good stories. I do have good stories that I can tell like like the times when I've had to go and evaluate somebody in prison like
1: Oh, for sure. The things that you've heard are outrageous. Probably.
2: Right, right. And it's like, I'm, I have some stories, like the time when literally they left me in an isolation room for over an hour, when they told me they were going to come back in three minutes. All of my personal belongings are gone because when you go into the prison, you can't have anything. You can't have your phones, like no communication device and it doesn't work in there anyway. And they said, don't worry, we're going to bring the inmate that you're evaluating today in just a minute. We're going to be back in five minutes. I was in there for at least an hour by myself with no way to communicate with anyone. And finally they come back and they say, we're so sorry that we left you in here. We kind of had an emergency in the yard and it was all hands on deck because there was essentially a fight that broke out among many inmates. And so they just left me in there because, you know, obviously, I'm not priority at that moment, but also no one decided to say, hey, by the way, it's going to be a while. So I felt a little bit like I might just be left here forever. Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah. They, yeah, they put you in prison.
2: <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I guess I'm going to stay in prison. And in that same exact visit when I needed to go to the bathroom, I had to like talk to somebody through like a little walkie talkie type of a device. And they said, oh, yeah, you can go to the bathroom but there was a miscommunication and they opened one of the inmate cells and they said, go ahead, go to the bathroom. I'm like, wait, I'm sorry. Am I supposed to use that toilet inside a jail cell? And they said, Oh, I'm so sorry. No, no, no. Red, that's right. You're the professional. And then the secret door opens and it's like a beautiful bathroom that no one uses, obviously so clean mirror, like the whole nine. But no, at first I thought, Oh my gosh, they want me to use this jail cell bathroom where everybody can see me going to the bathroom. And I was like, but I really need to go. So maybe I should. I mean, it was like, I didn't even know what I would
1: have just did it. I would have (laughs) bossed up and used that bathroom. That's what I would have done. I was like, you guys are going to treat me like a prisoner. I'm going to boss up and I'm going to use this bathroom. See, I
2: was like, maybe I should just do it too. Maybe I should just man up. Like that's how it works in here. And so, you know, I have, I just feel like I don't understand why scared straight program doesn't work. I've heard that it doesn't actually, but I was like, I think I was scared straight that day. I was like, you know what? I will oh, never, yeah. never, ever do anything to have to end up back here in any way, you know?
1: I have constant nightmares of being in prison. And for some reason, any other nightmare like scares me, but like nightmares about going to prison and knowing I can't go home are the most terrifying ones. It's terrifying. But also even in your field though, like, you know, not that all inmates are this way, but if you go as a woman and you're going in and talking to these inmates, walking through a prison is probably not the coolest place to be a woman.
2: No, I've definitely (laughs) been like keenly aware of that. And I think it's because my supervisors told me the same thing. They're like, why do you want to be an expert witness in criminal cases? I'm like, well, I think it's interesting. And I think I can help. And one of my supervisors who is a woman was like, take it from somebody who worked there for five years in the beginning of my career. She's like, it is not a walk in the park. You know, she I mean, she was like, "I, I just felt like, really, I had I struggled with that environment. And she's like, the boss. I mean, she is so good at everything that she does, but she was like, those were not easy years of my life. And I, I was oh, really so I can't even
1: imagine.
2: Yeah. And she saw all kinds of stuff. And I, I think she probably was a little traumatized by it, to, to tell you the truth. But I wasn't working there, thank goodness, every single day of my life. I'm, I'm only going in on occasion to evaluate, but it's never a comfortable environment, right? You're going in, sometimes it's a maximum security prison and it's just... Ugh. It's really tough. You have to be escorted everywhere, including to the bathroom. Like, I mean, everything, all of your liberties are taken away, at least temporarily. And I'm not saying that that's anywhere near the liberties that these people lose. But it's like, even just that tiny taste of it is like, yeah. Yeah, I I want want to get the hell out of here. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Do you think your, your work with the Big Sister Little Sister program had any influence on that?
2: Oh, for sure. I mean, that was really my first really my first reason for even thinking about psychology as a career. So I I started thinking about psychology as a career in in high school, which is a really early time. But at the same time, that was when I was involved in Big Sister, Little Sister. And I recognized like how much one person can really make a difference in someone's life by doing almost nothing. Because I was a 15-year-old, what was I really doing? I was just showing up, hanging out with my little sister who was 10 years old at the time. And I would just take her out to ice cream or we'd go to movies or we'd go to the bookstore. Like
1: still a lot of responsibility.
2: I I, yeah, it's a lot but of responsibility
1: I guess responsibility w- for a 15-year-old.
2: <laughs> well, yes, but I also didn't feel like I was doing anything. I was like, I'm just hanging out and getting free ice cream for her. Like what, it, you know, yeah. what am I really doing? But recognizing that she like started to really look forward to every Tuesday with me, like because she knew that afternoon was when we were gonna see each other. And then just over the course of time that I was working with her, which is probably a little bit over a year, year and a half, I think I just realized, oh my goodness, I'm one of the most stable people in her life. And that sounds really sad because it was really only maybe a year and a half in total, but she had gone to so many different foster homes. It was literally like one different foster home every few months that I was the person in her life at that point that she had seen the longest. And wow. even just having that stability was so important to her. you know. And actually I continue to keep in touch with her for a number of years. And it's really great to know that I made a difference even when I didn't think I was. And so I think that was what sparked my first thought of, you know, one person can really make a difference. And if I got the right education and experience, maybe I can make more of a difference. But like I said, even just showing up in the same place and not ditching out on her and not saying, oh, I'm not available this Tuesday because I have a date or whatever. Like, I just always was there. That was important to her, I realized.
1: Yeah, see, that's what I was talking about. The responsibility, because I feel like once you realize you're actually making a difference, then it's like, it becomes like, almost like a a civic duty, right? Yeah. The other question I wanted to ask you too is, you know, I know you obviously study brain trauma, right? So I've had five on record concussions.
2: (gasps) Oh, my gosh. From what?
1: So three of them were from football. One was from basketball. And then the other was I fell off a fence. And then I got my bell rung. I fell out of the back of a pickup truck one time. Oh, wow. So I've had five diagnosed concussions and I'm 33. What's my future looking like?
2: (laughs) Well, first of all, I think that even though I'm shaking my head like, oh, my gosh, these sound traumatic you'd be very surprised at how many people have relative, you know, various levels of brain trauma. Oh yeah. Right. So like it, you're not in the minority. And I think that a lot of people recover so well from these concussions Gosh. and You seem like you're still super sharp. And also you had these accidents or incidents at a younger part of your life. So your brain is much more easily bouncing back than if you were to have one of these injuries when you were like maybe 70, it's like, oh, at that time, your brain is already starting to be on like a natural decline, just regular age-related declines. And it's not that your brain isn't plastic anymore. It still has the ability to bounce back, but it's just not as pliable. It's like it bounces back a lot slower and, and maybe not at all, you know? for some people. And so I think your future is all good, you know? And yeah, it's amazing how resilient the human brain is actually overall, but it's crazy. I mean, sometimes you see the bad cases, but a lot of people, they do recover without too much problems.
1: So the other thing I wanted to ask along those lines too, when does like, like cognitively, like when does the brain like start to go downward?
2: Okay. This is going to depress you.
1: Oh my
2: god! Yeah, yeah. This is hey, go for it, you because because you're already you already peaked, Danny. No. Yes, but it's so unfair because we talk about the executive function, which is like the front part of your brain that's like makes us uniquely human and all that amazing stuff. That supposedly doesn't even get fully formed until you're in your mid twenties. And then I think you just have like five good years because then by the time you're 30, your brain is starting to be on this slow decline. I'm like, wait, so I'm sorry, your brain isn't fully developed until you're 25 or 26. And then at the age of 30, like it doesn't make sense. I'm like, somebody needs to redo all of this research because I don't think that tells people a very good story about our species at all. It's like, so you have four good years there and then you're just going to start slowing down. Like, what's up with that? You know?
1: I knew, I, I knew, I peaked. I know. I, I knew, I peaked. <laughs> the other thing, too, is that's probably because like human beings used to not live that long.
2: Exactly. Like 30 was what? I mean, you're like winding down, right? I mean, when we look at lifespan, I think there was a time when people were living, maybe if they're lucky, 35 to 45 years. And now it's double that.
1: Like diarrhea was a death sentence at one point. Oh,
2: yeah. Did you ever play Oregon Trail? I'm a little older than you. Every so. day
1: okay. at okay. school. Okay. I died from dysentery so many times.
2: That's what I was thinking about. I'm like, you know what? You just like really get knocked out by like dysentery and you're 10 years old. You know, you're like your nine year old daughter in Oregon Trail gets killed by dysentery when they're, you know, barely just beginning their life. So
1: when I was a kid, I was playing it and my character died and I got very upset. And this is how I found out that dysentery meant like, you know, dehydration, diarrhea, right? And I went to my dad and I was like, my character keeps dying. And he was like, of what? I was like, I don't know what it means. I can't really like read it, like, you know, like dissing something. And he comes and reads and starts cracking up. (laughs) And then he's just like, yeah, he's like, you know, that used to happen back in the day. But Oregon Trail was the best. I loved Oregon Trail.
2: Oh, it's the best. I was like, it's so old school, though. They never like updated the illness names because I never knew what they meant either. And when I was playing it, I was still kind of an ESL student because I came to America from Taiwan around the age of nine. So I came here, immediately started playing Oregon Trail and like had no idea what any of this stuff meant. I'm like, obviously it's an illness, but I've never heard anybody talk about dysentery in my doctor's office. And my parents were like, we don't even know what that means. Like, we're gonna have to look that up in the dictionary and like, what is that, (laughs) you know? So it was hilarious.
1: Let's stay on that ESL program, right? So you come from Taiwan and then you enter the American school system. What are your parents like? In terms of like pressure or in terms of, you know, wanting you to be to accelerate, because I feel like a lot of immigrant parents, when they come with their children, it's almost like, don't fucking embarrass me. Right. You know, and it's like, I did not do all this stuff to come here for like you not to be good at what whatever it is you want to do. And if you choose it, you better be 110% into it.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, I'll say this, like I could never do what my parents did. They up and moved when they were in their mid thirties to a country where they don't speak the language and they don't have connections. Like I couldn't do that, you know? So I was nine then I'm 43 now, but even 10 years ago or five years ago, I could not imagine moving across Like, I just can't, I I can't imagine going to a different country where I just don't know anything because you just get used to your environment you get comfortable, you know? So it's amazing that my parents even did that. But like you said, like they sacrificed a lot. So I think they were coming here for better opportunities for themselves and for us. And that's why they were so stressed out about the education, like make sure you get, you know, good education. And the funny thing is, and this is very stereotypical, but it's just true, like in Taiwan, they really emphasize math. And you hear this sometimes in like Asian countries, like math is a right, deal. Right, right. It is, it is. Like I was doing multiplication tables in preschool. Like it's crazy. So I came, to, <laughs> I came to America and the only subject I wasn't failing in the beginning because I don't speak any English yet is math because math is universal. So I was like in honors math, basically in the fourth grade and then was basically behind on everything else until I picked up the language. So- Yeah. So my parents, I think they did a great job of like getting us over here and making sure that we had access to everything that America had to offer. But they really didn't know anything else about how this world works either, except like, just make sure you do well in school. But it took me a little while, you know, it took me like a good year to really understand the English language well enough to start doing better at these other subjects.
1: So what language do you like to curse more in?
2: Oh, I still like to curse in English more when I curse in the Chinese language. I just feel like it's disingenuous somehow, like like just a little like like a little pretentious, like, oh, I'm trilingual. Like, you know, like, come on, you can say the F word a lot easier than to try to rack your brain about what is the most nastiest thing that you can say in Chinese. But I also speak a little little Spanish and I like to curse in Spanish too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Spanish is a fun, is a fun language to curse in. That was the comedian part of me. I just add some stuff to my bit in terms of, uh, I'm trying to be trilingual and cursing. That's my, that's my real goal. Perfect.
2: Well, did you know this? You can add some mental health information to this too. Did you know that people who are more intelligent curse more?
1: See, I knew I was a genius. I knew I was a fucking genius.
2: See, there's an association. So the more you curse, the more smart you become, maybe, you know, maybe that's what the study is saying.
1: And everybody says you're dumb. Everybody says you're dumb if you curse a lot. No, I'm just, I'm just a genius. Yes. I'm misunderstood is what it is.
2: I love that somebody did that study though. I bet it was somebody who was like cursing all the time and had a bet with their friend and was like, I'm going to do this study and you're going to know that I'm really smart because I curse. and it's not what you think. Yeah, but I think it makes sense. So basically, the study said that people who are smart curse more because they have more range in their verbal expression. And so Ah. they're going to use all kinds of words, including curse words. And like, it actually helps them to communicate better. Isn't that interesting? I thought that was really cool. Uh,
1: Now I know my brain has (laughs) peaked. But though I curse quite frequently, I am therefore a genius.
2: Exactly. So you can maybe increase your IQ points by continuing to curse and like combat the fact that all of us are past our primes now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Wow.
1: That's gonna, that's gonna rock me for a couple of days, to be honest. Yeah, I'm
2: really sorry to like break your bubble there. But I remember I learned that. And I was like, that is not cool. Like, I remember I learned that exactly at age 30. And I was like, "Uh, Oh, gosh, all right, I have like two good days left on my brain, I guess.
1: (laughs) So also, you're an actor and a musician.
2: Yeah, I've been in the performing arts since I was a kid, and it's always been a hobby of mine. So I still keep it up as best as I possibly can. And music is... What do you do do now? Well, I play piano, I play the guitar, I play violin, I sing. Those are probably my primary instruments. I also played some Chinese instruments when I was younger. And my, my parents were like, oh, don't cool. forget your Chinese culture. So I played like the zither and the pipa, which is like an upright classical yeah, kind of type of a Yeah. Yeah. So that was super fun. And then all throughout school, I was in, you know, musical theater. And I was basically like in glee club when I was in high school. It's an orchestra. And then some of that led to some acting, which is so weird, because I guess if you're in musical theater, you're kind of acting. And then sometimes people will say, hey, like we have. You know, a couple of roles on TV that maybe you could be a part of. So, yeah, so I just did some like really minor roles on TV, but it was really fun. It was really fun to kind of have this other part of my life and this other outlet. But for a long time, it was like the weirdest thing. So, like the people at my doctoral program, I mean, they were all such serious students that my professor was very worried that I wasn't serious about my psychology career. And I said, well, I don't know why you can't be serious about your psychology career. And at the same time, have these hobbies that you're also really passionate about, but there was definitely some stigma there. And I felt like I had to hide my hobbies. So that wasn't very fun. Like during grad school, I felt like I had to like really keep it on the down low that I was like in musical theater and doing other things. I was just like, no, like you have to keep your life separate. I feel like there's less and less of that now, but it's still a little bit like, there's only so many hours in the day, so like, are you really serious? And my answer is, I just never slept. I mean, I really, I only slept like four to five hours a night, very regularly. I don't think that's good. I'm not saying that that's what people should be doing, but like, that's how I made time. You know,
0: that's kind of so yeah,
1: how you. That's kind of how you molded molded your life to work the best that it could at that point.
2: Yeah, like I was gonna put in all the hours at work and more, but I also wanted to do these things on my off hours. And I was never really a person who just wanted to like chill out during my off hours. Like I really just wanted to be active all the time. So it fit my personality. But now that I'm older, Danny, I do appreciate the downtime a lot more. Like when I do have a few extra hours, I'm like, I could play piano or I could just like watch Comedy Central. <laughs>
1: uh, I no, I hear you. I always say that that boredom is a blessing. If you could work to a point where like you could have a couple hours like, oh, like I'll, I'll Fiddle around with this thing for a little bit, or I'll do this. I think it's very important to uh, take those hours and implement them in the stuff you don't usually do, because Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about the human brain scientifically, you know, to the point where you would, but I feel like maybe it actually exercises parts of your brain that maybe you haven't really been in cohesion with.
2: Yeah, I agree with you. I think that it's important to kind of let yourself be in a state where you're not generally in and that actually exercises, like you said, a different part of your brain or just like activates a different part of the rest and relaxation system. Cause if every time your rest and relaxation is the same activity, like it's good to switch it up, you know? And so sure. I think as I've gotten older, I have like started to embrace more of like, you don't always have to be moving when you have downtime. Like you don't have to over schedule yourself to that point. Like sometimes it's okay oh, yeah. just to say I have two hours of free time and maybe it's okay not to be productive and just like lay back and you know watch tv like right now i just started watching it's always sunny in philadelphia like
1: oh it's my favorite show
2: it is the best i mean i don't know why it took me 15 years to recognize that i should be watching this show but i'm on season four and i'm like addicted to it that's awesome
1: i am so jealous (laughs) that you get to see the nightman cometh for the first time
2: oh yeah that's coming up that's coming up i can't wait i I know people have told me about it like you're gonna love it i was like
1: This is what I tell people. My fiancé and I watch that show every day. We watch at least two or three episodes in bed every day. (laughs) Dennis Reynolds might be, besides Tony Soprano, might be my favorite character in the history of television.
2: Oh, my gosh. He is such a, like, I'm a man with psychopathic traits, by the way.
1: Yeah. So this he's is... the one He's the one that needs. And then there's an episode where they all get psychoanalyzed and you're going to love that episode. It's fantastic.
2: That is so great. Yeah. So my husband and I have the same pastime too. I mean, he started watching it before me. So like, I would we'll just be in bed and sometimes I'm, I'm watching something, he's watching something else. And then he'll just start laughing out loud. And I'm like, what are you laughing at? And he's like, you need to watch this show. Like he's just, it's like laugh out loud, buddy. It's so good.
1: It's uh, always sunny. I will always, they have a podcast as well.
2: They do. Oh man, I'm going to check it out. So they like recap episodes or what do they do?
1: And they've started from season one. So you can literally listen to the podcast and watch the show at the same time. It's a great oh show. God. It's very good.
2: Oh, that's really cool.
1: Speaking of like downtime, do you yourself, like someone that has to learn so much about the brain, do you like go to therapy?
2: Yeah. So I actually talk about this with even some of my clients who are, you know, they'll say, well, I don't feel like I need therapy. I don't know why I'm here. or I don't know why I went to therapy. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? Everybody needs therapy probably, but it might not be everybody's cup of tea. But I hope that it's not because you feel like there has to be something majorly wrong with you to go to therapy. You know? Right. Like, I started going to therapy probably when I started my private practice, like maybe really shortly after that, because I realized that, if I, I can't be bringing my stuff into the room, you know what I mean? And like, and, mm-hmm. and, and work is so stressful with people who might be really having a hard time. And if your mind isn't clear, how are you even serving your clients? So like, that was actually like the first reason I gave myself to go to therapy. And I think it's because I probably had some self stigma too. Like, oh, I have to have an explanation to go. Like, right. so my explanation is I'm going to serve my clients better by going to therapy. And I think that's true, obviously. But it's almost like you're not taking responsibility for the fact that maybe everybody has something that they need to work out. And it's going to be personally beneficial for you too, and also serve your clients. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, so I think for me, really, when I started to engage more in the process was like, right after my grandmother passed away, she was the literally the most important person in my life, aside from my parents, because she was like a mom to me, my parents were working like Double shifts, like they were never home. Oh yeah, right. I mean, they're like making ends meet. Like they did the best that they could, but that also meant they weren't home with me. So I grew up with my grandmother. She was my primary attachment figure until I was eight and moved away from Taiwan. So really, so many of my earliest memories were with my grandmother. And when she passed away, I felt like completely lost. And Mm. all of a sudden, I felt like I lost like this protection that I thought I used to have, like even though she was in Taiwan and I was in the United States, like I always just felt like everything was going to work out. Everything's going to be perfect. There's that,
1: yeah. There's that. I call them emotional tethers.
2: Yeah. Yes. So
1: it's like, even people that you haven't seen in a long time, they move across the country, but you're still, there's something that, it, and it's emotional and it's love that kind of tethers you to this other person. So when that tether gets severed, it's a big deal. It's a big it was deal. a
2: huge deal. Yeah. And I didn't realize that she contributed to like my sense of overall safety. Like when I was younger, I just kind of felt like everything's going to work out, like everything's going to be fine. And then once she passed away, I felt like my safety was yanked away from me. And I felt like bad things are going to happen or like, it won't work out. You know, like I started to feel like I was getting a little pessimistic, especially in the first few months after she passed. So really therapy was greatly helpful with that, because I really struggled with that grief when in the very first few months, for sure, after she passed, but you know, I miss her every day. But those first like six to eight months was really, really hard for me. And therapy really helped me with that and really helped me to understand like, why my attachment with her was so strong, you know, and how to deal with existential issues, because I started to like really fear death as an idea, like just all these things started to come up where, when I was younger, like, I didn't really give them a second thought. And all of a sudden I had all these existential fears too. Like, oh my gosh, like what's death going to be like? And like all of these things that I never used to think about. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I used to think about that every time I smoked weed. So like (laughs) I used to smoke weed and enjoy the first 10 minutes of it. And then 20 minutes after that, I'd be like, yo, like what happens to the human brain? Like after we die, like, does it release endorphins? Like, is it a good feeling?
2: Whoa. you get super deep when you
1: smoke weed. I get super deep when I blaze. So like I had to stop blazing because I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah.
2: That sounds exhausting.
1: Ah, oh, it was yeah. the worst. It was the worst. In terms of like the best thing about grandparents too is one, they love their grandchildren like more than their own children most of the time, which is like kind of fun. And also like can really get in trouble with them.
2: You never get in trouble with them. Yeah, my relationship with like my mother was so pure, right? And I talked to my mom about it. And my mom's like, I don't know who you're talking about, but that's not yeah. my mom, you know what I mean? Yeah.
1: <laughs> They're like, you know what? Your mom, not a big fan, but I love you. You're pretty cool. right? <laughs> so we're going to hang out with you. Do you think that most people, this is a, a big switch up, do you feel like a lot of people settle in relationships?
2: Such a great question. Yeah. You know what? I think that sometimes there are certain social constructs that make people feel like they have to do certain things at a certain time or have certain things be a part of their life. And I think that is what causes people to settle. I've talked to people, whether they're my patients, my friends, or my coworkers, where I think they just feel this immense pressure that they're supposed to be partnered at a certain age, having children at a certain age, that eventually they're just like, okay, I'm just going to do it with this person because like it's time. And I wish people didn't feel like they had to do that. But I also understand, right. Cause some of those social conscious can be very pressuring. So, you know, speaking for myself, my parents never pressured me to get married or have children. They were like, do whatever you want, which is really amazing. But like, I know that that's not true for a lot of people. Like literally you go, I mean, we're, we're rounding the holidays, you know, soon. And like people. I mean, on the holidays, they just get all that pressure. Like, well, when are you going to bring home a boyfriend? Or like, when are you finally getting married or having a child? And it's like, those things come up, especially around the holidays, for whatever reason, I guess, because all the family is getting together. And I can understand how pressuring that can be. But I think that's what causes people sometimes to settle. And then the other reason why people sometimes settle is because they, well, they like, are afraid of the unknown. Like, they're like, maybe this is as good as it gets. And that is a real disservice if you think that way right because how do you know it's as good as it gets like you can't be so afraid to lose what you have that you don't explore and like you only have one life to live don't you want to try your best to live it the best way possible but i know that it's not as easy right it's easy to like watch from afar and be like this is what you're doing but i think that those are some of the reasons why people settle
1: do you think men and women love differently
2: yeah I do. I do. I think that that's why when you're in heterosexual relationships, you hear these like stereotypical things of like women generally complaining that that their men don't listen to them, and then men are like, "What are you talking about? Like I thought everything was fine, and all of a sudden we're having an argument. Like So I learned something really interesting the other day in a seminar that I went to, which is that in heterosexual relationships, seventy five percent of the problems are brought like brought to the surface, like to talk about as a problem by the female partner. And 25% is brought by the male. And like everybody in the like room were like, yeah, that that sounds right for a heterosexual relationship. I'm like, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that women are always complaining? And the teacher was like, no, what it means is that women are just like more attuned to like all the different things, good and not so good, that are going on in the relationship. And then sometimes men are like blown away when they're in these relationships because they're like, wait a minute. Like, I thought everything was cool. And now you're telling me you've been upset for a month? Like. Oh, yeah. Like, so, yeah. Very I guilty feel like of that. Yeah. And then I feel like sometimes women, you know, and I'll speak for, you know, again, that's not every woman, but like in many heterosexual relationships, like sometimes women want like the men to read their minds. And like, that's not fair, right? Because if you don't tell them what you expect, then you get mad at them because they didn't like anticipate your needs. Like that isn't fair. So I've been trying to make sure that I don't do that to my own husband. I'm like, okay, like if I really need something from him, you just have to speak up. And then not be upset if you're like, okay, well, he's doing it, but because it's because I told him it's like, no, like, we have to communicate, though. Otherwise, you're going to be harboring resentment for no reason at all, you know. So I do think that sometimes communication gets like, really backed up in these relationships because of the fact that men and women communicate differently. There was also this research study that featured a game where the object of the game was, like, have the person guess the book that you're holding with the fewest number of words possible, right? Like just tell them a couple of clues, but like try to use the fewest number of words. And then we can see like who wins and the male, male partners won because they were able to be more concise and women used a lot more descriptors when they talk. So that's another one of those things that I think can come up in heterosexual relationships where the man is like, get to the point. And (laughs) the female partner is like, but no, you have to hear the context first. Like you have to hear the story and then like I'll she's in to-
1: love. It's like, I don't care about that. Yeah, yeah. It's Like, just like, what, what, like what's,
2: what's the point help?
1: of the story? Is he a wizard or like, what's yeah. up? Like, give me something. That's the other thing too. It's like, I feel like a lot of people will go into relationships kind of with a mindset, like kind of ready to settle. So like they'll oversee like a lot of red flags. Mm-hmm. So I was watching a show with my fiance the other day and it was about In the show, a guy goes on like a guy's trip, Mm -hmm. right? And they've been together for a while and he goes away for an entire weekend and doesn't text or call her. Kind of a red flag, right? Yeah, yeah. But they stay together. Mm. Now, what do you think about acting on red flags immediately?
2: Yeah, you know, I think that you have to strike a balance. I think that sometimes people act too quickly. Right. It's like
1: people need to find the balance. That's the problem.
2: Yes. Like don't like just break up with somebody because of one, like slightly iffy thing that you didn't really fully check out. But you're like, well, that's it. He's just like all the other jerks that I've ever dated, like and break up. But then people also like explain away too many issues and give too much of the benefit of the doubt, especially if it's a pattern. Right. So I think that's what you're kind of talking about. It's like every time a red flag surfaces, they have an explanation for it. And then in their mind, they only remember their own explanation and the way that they've already like justified the problem. And so they don't even remember how bad it was when it happened. And I do see this a lot in relationships. And one of the most, I mean, I think one of the red flags that if it keeps happening, it's like, look, you either need to check this out or you need to break up with the person. Like this has happened to like a number of my girlfriends on a number of occasions where it's like, two weeks into the relationship, they're already, the guy's already like, I need to take a break. It's like, what kind of break do you need from a 14 long, day long dating situation?
1: Yeah, it's a little Like odd. if
2: the guy's already a runner that early, like that's not going to look good.
1: No. Right? Because where's, where's he going to be five months from now?
2: Right. Or like two or three weeks into a relationship that they thought was consensually monogamous. They find out that the person's cheating already. It's like, really like, the first month that you guys are together they're already cheating like either you well, either that you happens have, like, a talk lot too. This or, yeah.
1: Well that's how people get caught too like they'll, like they'll still be on Tinder. Like they'll still have their what account. What are you
2: doing? Yeah. And
1: then like people people get caught. Now, the other question I wanted to ask too. Have you ever like consulted like a homosexual relationship?
2: You mean have I ever like worked with patients who are? Yeah. Yes.
1: Now, is that like a, is that like a hurdle for you? I've always wondered in terms of like, say, you know, me being heterosexual, right? And if I was a therapist, like, I wouldn't know how that works. Do you have to approach that differently? Or is it something like in terms of like, obviously, you, you have a grasp on the human brain. But you know, in that situation, the dating mentally, there's something biologically different.
2: Yeah, I think you talk about what's universal, which obviously, like love is universal, everyone expresses it differently. But like, You know, we've been talking a lot about multicultural counseling and like, what does it mean to have multicultural competence? And I don't think it means that you understand everything about every diverse factor that's out there, but you have to have this attitude of humbleness and like curiosity when you want to understand more about it. So instead of like assuming things about relationships that are homosexual in nature versus heterosexual, you just ask them like, well, what is it like in your relationship? What's the dynamic? How does that play out? You know, instead of just assuming things like, like people sometimes, for example, will assume, oh, in a homosexual relationship, there's still a male or a female figure. That's not the case. That's not true. But for some relationships, it is, you know, so it's not like it doesn't happen. But it's like, that can't be a stereotype that you just kind of you know apply across the board and so i think just you know going to the table and admitting what you don't know and then asking questions about what you do like i've never had a patient be insulted if i'm like well i don't know how it works in this culture or in this relationship? Like, can you tell me more about that so I can understand how better to help you? No one's ever been like, well, you should know. Like, no, like if you go with like that period of like, you know, that attitude of humbleness, I think people appreciate it. They're just like, okay, like if you don't understand, like here's how it works for us. And I don't know if it works for all gay couples this way, but it works in our relationship this way. And I think that that's the way to interpret it, you know?
1: For sure. Because, you know, obviously as you know, there's going to be more and more of, of these situations that you know, old books probably didn't write too much about, you know, so the the curriculum, I'm sure is is already like constantly being updated, but dealing with somebody who's non binary, like it's gonna be hard to give relationship advice, because it's almost like the training is still like catching up.
2: Exactly. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that our diagnostic manual thought that homosexuality was a illness, you know, I mean, I think maybe it feels like it's a long time ago, but it really wasn't. It was only a few decades ago. And that's just crazy, right? It's like at some point, people were being diagnosed with a mental illness, if you were attracted to the same sex, like, we've obviously come a long way since then, but we're still nowhere near perfect. And I think that that's why, like you said, the field, the research, like it's still playing catch up, and there's still so much to learn. But I've also had people tell me, we're probably never going to get there. And like, the diagnostic manual is going to piss off somebody at some point somewhere, like, there's always something that's in there that people are like, why is this in there? Like, why is this? So like, one of the more recent ones is people who might identify as transsexual, right? There used to be a different name for an illness that made it sound like it was their fault. It was like, they have some kind of like, gender dysphoria, like, It's like, well, why is it dysphoria? Almost like
1: body, body, like transmorphia, like whatever. Yeah, yeah,
2: Yeah. kind of put the blame almost on the person when in some ways of interpreting it. And so they changed the name of the illness so that it doesn't sound that way anymore. And I don't think that when they first wrote it that way, probably the people were just like blind to that that problem. They were like, sounds fine to us. Like, yeah, sounds fine to you because you're not the one who's dealing with it. But the person who's dealing with it is like, this is really, really insulting, you know?
1: I think that's just where human empathy comes in. Yes, where you kind of have to go to the to that state. And people want to be treated like humans at the end of the day. That's Yeah, a lot of the basic construct is I, I want to be treated like a human being.
2: Right. And we've totally come back full circle, because we started talking about psychopaths and how they don't have empathy. <laughs> and yes, uh, there right? it is. There it is. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Like, that's amazing. See, like your brain is still in tip top shape. You don't worry. You're like, that statistic, Danny. Don't I'm worry trying. about that statistic I told you earlier. Yeah, but but I do think that it is something where that's why empathy is so important and like trying to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Like that's all we need, right? To try to get along a little better. Like I feel like so many fights and arguments could get at least partially resolved if you just like stop for a second. It's like, what might this person be thinking or feeling? And then if you give them a little bit of that benefit of the doubt, maybe it'll help you to resolve that argument a little easier.
1: One final question I ask every guest this at the end of the show. Are you happy today?
2: I am happy today. And I love that question. I don't know if anybody's ever asked me that question. Is that weird? No one's ever asked me if I'm happy. No one's ever asked me.
1: (laughs) Well, that's good that you are happy today. And then my thing is always take that with you and ask somebody else today if they're happy today.
2: I love it. Thank you.
1: Where can everybody find you on the internet?
2: So you guys can find me at DrJudyHo.com. That's my website. Lots of free resources there for mental wellness. I also am on social media, so you can follow me at DrJudyHo, d r j u d y h o on Instagram.
0: Thanks for joining me on another episode of Off the Cuff, presented to you by One on One Life. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and send us some love with a review. And don't forget, we're all in this together and you're never alone. Peace. Tame <laughs>